Hello there, friend. Wherever you are and however you have arrived here, welcome to the Kind Mind Podcast. It's a pleasure to share this time with you. My name is Todd, and just a couple things to share before we dive into this episode. There are two events coming up this month. One is in person next Thursday, May 26th at 7 p.m. The Forest Preserve District of Will County is presenting a talk with me at the Isle a la Cache Museum in Romeoville, Illinois. The details are on my website, michaeltodfink.com. Admission is free, and I'm looking forward to revisiting a previous podcast on the democracy of trees. So it'll be great to connect in person again. And then, as always, we have our Kind Mind Gathering at the end of the month on Tuesday, May 31st at 7 p.m. Central Time. That's for anyone who is a member of the Patreon community, so check that out if you get a chance or if you haven't yet. And sign up, pay what you feel, cancel any time, patreon.com slash kindmind. There's a link in this description. And now this episode was recorded last June at a Kind Mind gathering on Zoom. I had promised earlier in the year that I would share more about social wellness, specifically trust and boundaries. Well, here it is. Trust can be a behavioral response, a way of thinking, can be a virtue or a feeling of confidence or belief in the reliability, veracity, or integrity of another or even oneself. Compared with other organisms, Humans are born significantly underdeveloped physically and highly vulnerable for a considerable period of time. Therefore, trust and mistrust can be profoundly wired into our design as it's uniquely relevant in our survival. People often say they don't trust others much, but that might apply more to one's attitude towards specific kinds of relationships. Meanwhile, most of us do trust others in daily life more than we may realize and I share that in this talk, examples. Trust can be altered by levels of oxytocin, which is a pro-social hormone in the body. We also have an evolutionary propensity to trust faces that look similar to our own, perhaps because our brains recognize a higher probability of being related and thus protected. But in this episode, I want to go beyond the idea of, of us and expand our sense of, of we-ness. Because inside the word trust, you have us. And in this world where there's so much social discord, but different kinds of people are encountering each other. Even for the first time in human history, we have all of this ability to meet one another. So it's time to, to learn and to listen and to grow and to expand and to be inclusive. And I try to explore alternative psychological approaches to trust in this episode, especially when it comes to trusting ourselves. And this involves the root word of trust, which is true. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But I don't think it has to be all about living up to some high standard of goodness. It can be true that regardless of what happens, pleasant or unpleasant, we can trust that we will grow in wisdom and we can build something meaningful out of anything. Now, why did I title this episode, Testing the Timber of Trust? What does timber have to do with trust? I didn't realize it at first. It wasn't until even after I gave the talk. But when you break down or you trace the etymology of trust, you have true, like I mentioned. 
which is Dru in Proto-Indo-European language. And Dru in Sanskrit is tree. When you trace that further to Daru, that's wood, but specifically timber, which is interesting here because timber is that kind of wood that is suitable to build or construct. And ancient people probably thought, wow, trust is like this, this wood in the tree, a special wood, because look how consistent the tree is. Look how stable. Look how steady the tree is. And the trees themselves, they trust each other. The fir gives to the birch in the winter and the birch gives to the fir in the summer. They operate as one holistic life. And there's so much to learn, and we'll explore that in the the talk next week. But timber is tested before you can trust it. And the way that we test this kind of wood has its own metaphor for our relationships and ourselves. I'd like to share with you eight points for testing timber. One, is it free from dead knots? Now, if you think about a person... Where are our knots? Where are we storing or holding on to resentment or bitterness? So what is the limit of where we, where we can be honest, where we can be open, and how can we untie those knots? Two, does the tree possess annual rings? So this, this to me is like, can you count on one another? Can a person show that not just for the first few months of a relationship can you say a bunch of, uh, of kind things, sweet things, but year in, year out, can a person show up in truth, in, uh, in friendship, in support, in reliability? Three, the carved surface of timber ought to give a sweet smell. So... Can a person actually be gentle and kind and be sweet with their words and their, their touch, their affection? Then behind that, number four, is the wood heavy. Because that's how you know it's going to be strong, regardless of how it looks, regardless of how it smells or how sweet it is. Similarly, is a person containing depths within? Or are they willing to go to, to new depths with another because it's one thing to have all this pleasantness on the surface, but what's possible within? Five, is the wood durable but elastic? Wood and relationships that you can build with must allow for flexibility. How far can somebody bend without breaking? Or another way to think of this, how rigid is another person in their view, in their opinion? in their position. If you know that this person is rigid, how can you trust that they can expand, that they, they can grow, that they could evolve with you? Number six, is the wood resistant to fungus and insects? In life, in relationships, how easily can our character be corrupted? How easily can a promise be broken? What sort of ideas can infect the mind and pollute our clarity of thought. Seven, 
Is the timber resistant to fire? What happens when there's heat and pressure in a relationship, when the heat is on? Can you count on another person? And eight, can it bear a reasonable amount of weight? Can you count on somebody to be able to lean on them in times of trouble? And can they count on you? Beautiful little thought experiment with the testing of timber and applying it to trust in our relationships and trust in ourselves. Trust also contains this word true. And I think that reflects our own inner longing to know and live in truth. We want to know that people are telling us the truth. We want to know that we can trust the people that we're investing our life and our time and our heart into because we love truth. So it is also the love of self unfolding because the self is always the self. What's true underneath everything is always true. I use this word trust in place of faith, and you, you may recognize that throughout this episode. And I think you know, we could use the word faith, but it has a lot of religious baggage. And sometimes I think the word faith is too concerned with belief, believing in God. But when I think of trust, it's so much more than that. And so you're welcome to interchange these words as is meaningful to you. But you are familiar with the expression, trust the process. I really think of that as the scientific method. Trusting the process is scientific, whether it's inward or outward, trying to know the world or trying to know ourselves. We can trust that that process will work, that knowledge will be revealed by continued seeking, testing, learning, uncovering. So trust doesn't mean we have faith in divine intervention or that what we want is what will ultimately happen or what we're trying to manifest will eventually come to us. No. Rather, the truth is always the truth. And everything that happens is bringing us closer and closer to reality. To me, faith means what is true, not in the relative sense, but whatever is the reality of our nature is the place from which we build. It's our spiritual home. We are that. So there's no way, no how, because we are that. Therefore, all roads, all paths lead away. And that understanding is the beginning of self-trust. I want to conclude this intro by reading a poem to you by one of the greatest 20th century poets and most significant German voices, Rainer Maria Rilke. I've been studying his letters to a young poet, which is an, a true correspondence between him and a young aspiring writer, Franz Kappes. Thankfully, Rilke wrote back and we have had those letters published. And when I'm reading them, my first reaction was, gosh, this person is so dramatic or passionate, can't really be that excited about poetry and about writing. But I've come to really understand that Rilke is an ecstatic artist. It's not that he's happy all the time. Much of Letters to a Young Poet is about the power and reality of solitude and its necessity for creation. But Rilke is just so 
charged up by the miracle of aliveness and it will stir something within you. Now, the, the, I just happened to open a new book that I have of his, The Book of Hours, which were his own private prayers to the divine. It wasn't, he wasn't intending to publish it, but, but it did get published. And then afterwards, he considered that the, the real beginning of his artistic legacy. And I just opened to a random poem in the book of pilgrimage within this. And it just seems to align with what this episode is about. So here goes. How surely gravity's law, strong as an ocean current, takes hold of even the smallest thing and pulls it toward the heart of the world. Each thing, each stone, blossom, child, is held in place. Only we, in our arrogance, push out beyond what we each belong to for some empty freedom. If we surrendered to Earth's intelligence, we could rise up rooted like trees. Instead, we entangle ourselves in knots of our own making and struggle lonely and confused. So, like children, we begin again to learn from the things because they are in God's heart. They have never left him. This is what the things can teach us to fall, patiently to trust our heaviness. Even a bird has to do that before he can fly. Hope you enjoyed that poem and Rainer Maria Rilke's book, Letters to a Young Poet, is featured in my recommended reading list on my website. Again, part of the bonus content of this podcast if you support on Patreon. So check it out. And now, on to the episode. Trust is a very deep topic. There's many different ways we can define it. Trust can be a feeling. It can be an attitude. It can be a decision. It can be a noun. It can be an account or uh, an economic quality. So there's lots of different aspects to it. We'll explore a few as it applies to the psychological realm and social psychology and spirituality. Trust is particularly relevant for human beings compared with other organisms, specifically because of the vulnerability of the human being at the time of birth. It takes so many years for a human to be able to protect himself or herself. And so within one hour, the baby is looking to the mother or to the caretaker and trusting, turning the head towards the caretaker and trusting the guardian to care for him or her. I mean, that is very different from other organisms which have much more stability very quickly. I think a cow starts to stand up on its own within two hours or something like that. So I think that evolution wires into us a natural disposition to trust. Like in the poem or like in the essay, what choice does the baby have? The baby has no other choice but to trust the caregiver. That's its only choice. And if we weren't wired with that trust as a small child and we said, no, I trust myself or I mistrust these people, so I'm just departing. If there wasn't that sense of trust, 
those who felt that way may have been weeded out already by natural selection. So trust is quite probably our default state of mind when it comes to relationships. But in time, there are violations of our trust and we unlearn that or we get conditioned to mistrust. Even when we feel that we have trust issues, specifically in relationships, it most likely doesn't mean that we go around mistrusting everything. There are so many examples of how we're trusting different situations. We read something, we trust that it's true. We go to the store, we trust that the product is really what it says it is. We trust that the expiration date on a package is true. We trust that the people that we do business with are actually those kind of people. We trust that the doctor actually went to med school. We don't thoroughly examine all these things, we just trust. Because if we didn't in all the situations, like Mahatriya Ra says in this book, we would be constantly distressed. Our brain would be overloaded with the mistrust. So trust is natural. In times of hunter-gatherers in the ancient past, there were no other means to get more validity on a situation. Whereas today, we're not really wired to adapt so much to all the different types of technology, but our ancestors didn't have the internet to go look something up. So trust was really relevant. And when that trust is complete, when we give our trust to someone and they make good on it, it's a very powerful effect in the brain and in our biology. Researchers have studied where the brain lights up and we see activity in the ventral medial cortex and the striatum, and it's signaling really positive evaluations and pro-social connections and qualities. It feels really good to trust and to have that trust validated. There was a study done with a computer and subjects, and the subjects were under the impression, they created an illusion where the subject thought they were making economic investments and choices with three different partners on the other side of a computer screen. They were led to believe that one is a close friend of theirs, one is a stranger, and one is a computer algorithm. But in reality, all three of the potential partners are the exact same computer algorithm that responds in a trustworthy way to the subject's choices 50% of the time. And then they interview the subjects about their levels of trust and who they feel better about cooperating with or trusting of the three potential partners. And nearly every time they said they felt like they made really good bonds or connections with their friend, that they actually perceived there to be more trust simply based on the interactions with the computer, even though it was all the same. So it shows that we're wired to connect with friends, to make bonds, to get closer to people, and to be able to trust each other. And that's because of what I said with our human development, but also humans really needed to become friends and needed to build relationships to survive even beyond adulthood, to build fire, to build structures, to have divisions of labor, to rise to the top of the food chain, because human beings on their own, adult or otherwise, without advanced weaponry, are not really more skilled in self-defense than, than the largest predators. 
So we needed to trust each other. We needed to become friends. Now this gets disrupted in a few ways through traumatic experiences. And I think I have talked about this before, probably in the podcast episode about forgiveness, you can find more detailed explanation of psychological wounds. But there are three ways humans go through this kind of trauma that affects our ability to trust our instinctive trust and how it can be impaired. And the first one is abandonment. Abandonment could be any type of neglect from a caregiver or somebody that's really important, whose attention that we feel we need for our well-being, for our safety. So when parents get divorced, that could be an abandonment. An abandonment could also occur even when parents don't get divorced or when someone doesn't leave. But if they're not given attention, if they're not emotionally available, it can be a type of abandonment in the form of, of neglect. Another one is betrayal. Betrayal happens when somebody important to us lies to us, steals from us, cheats us in some way, or abuses us in some way, physically, emotionally, verbally, sexually, because it's a violation of the code of respect and dignity that we think all human beings ought to share, just like basic level of dignity that we show each other. And sometimes this is violated and when it's violated by people in the role of protection inside the circles of our deepest trust, it leaves a deep wound and people can be fighting to recover from this wound for many years, or they can simply be operating in a way that compensates for that wound, but actually impairs their ability to have meaningful relationships in their adult life. They can constantly be trying to survive that violation in childhood in their adulthood. And every relationship is going to have betrayal, believe it or not. It's just that there are different degrees of betrayal. And then some are accumulate sort of like dents in a car, whereas other times it's like a major car crash. But they build up over time because every individual has their own preferences and their own expectations in a relationship, their own wishes and likes and dislikes. And it's unrealistic that it will always sync up with one's partner or close friendships or other relations. So we're bound to feel betrayed at different times. And that cumulative effect can impact how much we trust in each of our interactions. And then the third one is shame. These are all archetypal psychological wounds in the sense that they're not limited to American culture or modern culture. These kind of wounds have existed in all times and all civilizations. Shame has been used throughout history as a way to ostracize members of a group for violating the norms or putting the group at risk in the eyes of the others. But shame happens whenever an individual is made to feel small or insignificant or fundamentally flawed or broken in some way. And that can come through language. It can happen by the way people treat each other. And again, if it's somebody important, it tends to have a greater impact. It's one thing when a stranger calls you a name, but if a parent is constantly suggesting that we're ugly or unattractive, that can really hurt the way we feel in relationships. It can really hurt 
our ability to be open in relationships. So then this affects our boundaries. And our boundaries, in one sense, are the circles of trust around our core being. So you've heard of the inner circle. The inner circle would be the closest people in our life that we feel we can trust with our personal information, with intimacy, with affection, with physical contact. And that may be family, but it may not be family. It could be the closest friends. It could be a romantic partner. And then beyond that circle, you would have other friends and family. They're not in the inner circle, but they're not in the outer circle either. They're not total strangers. They have some access to you, but not as much as the inner circle. And then there are some outer circles, which are acquaintances, co-workers, and then out to strangers, people you don't know. And there ought to be some codes to get closer to the inner circle. When these boundaries are healthy, they're set in a positive, meaningful way. And people in our life get closer and further, depending on the circumstances of life, depending on the quality of our relationships. And the boundaries actually stay the same. But when there's trauma, the boundaries tend to get distorted. And it's not that the people move all around, it's that the boundaries move all around. And it creates conflict in people's lives. So for example, if somebody's been betrayed, it can be very instinctive to put up walls, emotional walls or literal walls where a person doesn't want to leave their room or doesn't want to let anybody get close to them. So the, the idea here is that if I keep everybody at a further distance from me, they can't get close enough to me to betray me. That makes sense, but the problem is that there was a, a fallacy in that the one person that betrayed us, even though they were close, doesn't scientifically generalize to everybody in society. There's no known truth to that. So that hasn't been proven, but we can operate as if it were true. An alternative may be that a person actually removes their boundaries, has no boundaries or porous boundaries. The logic here is that if my boundary had been violated when I had a boundary, when I had a healthy boundary, then if I remove the boundary, I can't really be violated, right? So like if my car was broken into and repeatedly broken into, and I'd have to keep repairing the windows because someone's smashing the windows and grabbing my belongings, at some point I may decide I'm not going to keep replacing the windows. I'm just going to leave the door unlocked because of where it's parked and I have no other choice but to park it there and it's in a dangerous environment, let's say, or a high crime area, then at some point you could understand why an individual may choose to just simply leave the door unlocked. Because if it's going to get robbed anyway, it would be much better if the window's not smashed. I see that a lot in behavioral health. And believe it or not, sometimes people respond with both porous boundaries one day and walls another day or e even in the same day. And the road back to healthy relationships and trust after traumatic experiences would be to reset the boundaries with the support of mental health insight and wisdom and good counseling. And then allow people to build trust with you again, meaning there should be some codes that you give people the opportunity to use to get closer to you. We could think of one code being safety. If I'm in the presence of another person and they don't physically harm me or they don't emotionally or verbally harm me, 
it's some indication that there's some amount of trust there. If they show me respect, if I get a little closer to somebody with information or with my feelings, if I'm a little bit vulnerable in what I share emotionally and they don't judge me, they don't hold it against me or they don't put me down or use it to hurt me or to exploit me, then there's some sign of trust. There's some code of trust. If there's acceptance with what I say, I, I may say something that's true for me, but it's not what the other person wants to hear, and yet they accept it, then there's some sign of trust. And then, of course, this all builds up into love. When there's the code of love, it's an indication that people can come closer. Now, when there's walls, genuinely trustworthy people can come to your life, but they can't get close to you and you can't share that kind of intimacy and have access to that kind of connection and support, which leaves us feeling isolated. And since we're social animals, that's going to take a serious toll on our health and lead to loneliness, which has all these other negative side effects and has been shown to be as unhealthy as smoking, smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So this is something to be mindful of if that pertains to us, if we feel like we have a hard time trusting people. And it's important to understand what we mean when we say that. Because like I said, we are actually engaging in trust in a lot of other unacknowledged ways. And so when people realize that, they can actually start to build trust in their relationships too. Trust is something that gets stronger over time in relationships, even though our original instinct is to trust. People start a relationship and they usually feel like, I can trust this person because there's no reason not to trust them. And then what happens in relationships, people eventually betray our trust in a small way or in a big way. And it can be wise to go into any relationship without all these ideas about what you would never forgive or how you would come to mistrust somebody. So people will often think, yeah, infidelity is where I draw the line. I'm out if somebody cheats on me. And believe it or not, it can be healthier to not have all these conditions in our mind for how we would love, because ultimately love is unconditional. But to see as we go along in any relationship, friendship, partnership, and otherwise, to actually see how do we repair from any kind of betrayal. Because as I'm saying, it's unrealistic that nobody will ever not meet your expectations. It's unrealistic that that wouldn't happen, that your expectations would be violated. So there'll be some kind of betrayal. But we can actually build stronger trust sometimes by how we repair our betrayals, how people are accountable to you and respectful of your feelings and how empathetic they can be when they learn about the impact of their decisions. And if you approach relationships in that way, trust can be this flower that keeps blossoming and I think trust and love almost become synonymous. When it comes to the spiritual quality of trust, it really is about love. In the spiritual quest, the relationship between a teacher and a student is really one of trust and love. It's not that a true or genuine spiritual master is looking to get followers. If they're just trying to get numbers or followers, they're not genuine. Because a disciple or a student is not really a follower. A disciple is one who really loves the teacher and the wisdom of the teacher. 
And because of that, there's a trust. And if the teacher is genuine, he or she is going to do everything they can to help the student find their spiritual freedom. And it's the trust that opens up the gates of peace in that bond. There's a story from Sufism about a man named Mojud, who was a simple but very loving and open-hearted man who is actually ripe for awakening, though he wasn't specifically searching for a teacher, but you've heard the expression, when the student is ready, the master will appear. And in this simple life of Mojud, he was working as an inspector for some company. And due to the economic circumstances in that country at that time, there was no other real occupational prospects for him. So he just assumed he would be working in this post for his whole career. But one day, he met on the road a Sufi saint known as Khidr, K-H-I-D-R, also known as the Green One. He had some green aura to him in the mythology of Sufism. And approaching Mojud, he said, Mojud, you're one of simple devotion and spiritual ripeness for awakening. Can you meet me in three days at the river? And this will require you to leave your job if you want to meet me. And Mojud was a little nervous, but he trusted Kurder, and he went to his superior at this post and he said, I'm sorry, but I have to take leave of my job. And due to the economic crisis in the country, his coworkers and his superiors thought maybe he wasn't right mentally. And soon they replaced him because there were many other people vying for that position. But Moju didn't worry about it. And in three days, he met with the saint at the river. And the saint tells him, Moju, please remove your clothes and immerse yourself into the river. And he does. And he enters into the river. He was a swimmer, so he didn't drown. But there was a strong current in the river. So he couldn't stay where Kurder was at the bank. He immediately started going downstream. And he's swimming and trying to stay afloat. And eventually he encounters a small boat with a fisherman in it. The fisherman sees Mojud and sees that he's naked and he thinks something is not right with this man. But he uses his net to help bring him onto the boat and he says, What are you doing? Are you all right? Why are you in the river? Why are you naked? Why are you out here like this? And Mojud says, I really don't know, actually. And the fisherman says, Well, I don't know what's going on with you, but I'll do what I can to help you. And he brings him home to his hut and quickly learns that Mojud is quite educated and the fisherman cannot read or write. Mojud starts to teach him how to read, how to write, some practical wisdom and knowledge from his years of service. And in exchange, the fisherman is helping Mojud learn how to become a master fisherman and how to survive on the river. After some months together, Kirder appears again and tells Mojud, it's time for you to leave this hut. So please take leave from the fisherman. And he gives him a direction to head in. And Mojud thanks the fisherman and says goodbye. And as he's wandering down the road, he meets a farmer. The farmer takes him in 
and he spends multiple years this time with the farmer, learning everything about agriculture, but nothing else. Mojud exchanges with him what he knows, and in time, Kirdur appears again and tells Mojud, please take leave of the farmer and head into the city. And he does, and he becomes a merchant in the city, and by this time, people are starting to recognize something in Mojud. He has a certain kind of aura to him, some illumination is dawning in him, and he's actually starting to perform miracles without trying to. People come to him who are sick, and they leave healed, and he starts telling people spontaneously things about their future. He starts gaining access to knowledge of the past and the future. And then he has quite a bit of money from operating as a merchant in the city, and he thinks maybe he'll buy a house. And just as he's about to buy the house, Kurdur appears one more time and says, please give all your money to me. Mojud gives him all the money and begins to wander as an ascetic. And by this time, his realization is almost complete. He's filled with immense peace. He's glowing with enlightenment. And yet he was never practicing anything. Now clerics and philosophers and priests and religious people are coming to Mojud for answers and they start to write his biography. So they're asking him questions. They want to work on the biography of this holy man. And Mojud's much older now. And they're asking him why he decided to become an ascetic. And Mojud's saying, I had never decided to become an ascetic. And they said, well, who trained you? Who is your teacher? Who is your master? Mojud said, it's difficult to say. Then they're saying, this isn't a good biography of a saint. So they make up a bunch of stuff. They said, don't worry, we'll fill in the gaps for you. Oh, great one. And they put together a story that's not true. And in the end, it's an example of how we get all these fantastic stories. And the truth in Mojud's case was that he simply trusted life. He trusted his master. But he trusted that just by embracing whatever was natural for him in the moment, by just trusting his own work, his own experience, that everything would come to him, and it did. We think that we can't get spiritual wisdom by working this particular job or being in this particular situation or having this partner. That's not to say one should stay in a situation that's unhealthy or something like that. But the message in the story of Mojud is that through trust in oneself or trust in the teacher, if one has one, and then trust in life, all the wisdom will dawn on us. It's by resisting life and by beating ourselves up or beating ourselves down about our present circumstances and constantly being lost in ambition and overwhelmed with desires that we lose all connection to the present moment and all the illumination that is present in each circumstance, in each situation. There's a similar story about a spiritual aspirant who came to a supposed holy man and asked for initiation and instruction. But that teacher was not genuine like Kurder, And he said, follow me be devoted to me and take my name. Use my name in all circumstances of life. Let people hear you speaking my name. 
and let everyone know that I'm your guru and master and I will always protect you. So that was good enough for the simple man. Some days later, the disciples of that teacher come running to the teacher saying, what happened with this new student? How did he gain this power? And the teacher saying, what are you talking about? I said, he was walking across the river. He was walking on water. And they see him doing this again. And the teacher comes and he's thinking, how, how did he do that? He asks his student, how were you able to stand on the water? He said, I just did what you said. I took your name. I started to walk across the water, chanting your name, trusting that I wouldn't fall, that I wouldn't sink, and I didn't. The teacher said, then your devotion is perfect. And he asked him to do some other stunts. He, he said, could you go up on top of this hill and jump off? So he goes to the top of the hill, he jumps off, chanting the name of his teacher, but somehow he isn't injured when he falls and comes back. And now the teacher's thinking, wow, I must be really great. So he starts to step into the river, he takes a, a leap off the bank, chanting his own name, and immediately falls into the water and starts to get swept away by the current. The students are able to save him and pull him out. The man comes to him and he says, why weren't you able to walk on the water like me? And at this time, finally, the teacher admits that it's because I am a fraud and you're the real deal. And the student's thinking, well, how can that be? I'm using your name. He said, it's not the name, it's the trust. It's not the teacher, it's not the outer form or the relationship. It's the inner trust that you have. It's the peace that you have because of your trust that allows you to perform the miracles. So anyways, the final message in all of this is that as we can learn to trust in life, in ourselves, in our own story, that the way our story is unfolding has meaning. It's not that the story has to live up to some standard of perfection or that we have to find relationships that will never betray us. It's that we can keep learning what it means to love ourselves to accept ourselves, to have compassion for ourselves and others. And we can trust that whatever the plot is of our life will be meaningful. And that whatever it gives us, pleasant or unpleasant, can be the building blocks for us to build something beautiful with our life. And it also shows that we are actually trusting systems within our own body, whether we are aware of it or not. We put food into our mouth, we chew it and send it down, and we just trust that our stomach and digestive system will, will do the rest. And we may trust it so much that we take liberties with what we will take into ourselves. And there's so many other systems like that. We go to sleep and we just trust that something will keep our breath going. And we don't have to do the breathing. It will continue without us, without our consciousness. There's so many things like that happening in our own biology that we may take for granted, but when it's pointed out like that, we can really see the beauty. Thank you for sharing. I'm going to read a question here. In relationships, I tend to be distrusting before the person breaches the trust, like I'm suspicious for no specific reason. I do trust friends, but I'm speaking about my boyfriend. 
So, yeah, I think like we naturally trust lots of people, like you're saying in this reflection that you are able to trust other people. There was probably, I'm guessing, but maybe there was some violation of trust in other relationships in the past, or maybe it wasn't a romantic relationship, but it was a close relationship where trust might have been violated. And so what happens is it affects our boundaries with a specific kind of relationship. It's not that like somebody then won't trust that a red light's eventually going to turn green. We'll still trust all these other situations, but we may have a hard time trusting in a specific kind of relationship. And like you're saying, for no specific reason. That takes some mind-body healing, noticing what comes up. Through mindfulness, I think a person can see when they feel unsafe. They can start to recognize that there's not a reason for that. There's some fear coming up from previous betrayals and we still just have to come back i think to those access codes which is safety respect non-judgment acceptance and trust the way to wade into trust or to be vulnerable is to give a little and build people struggle because they share too much in the beginning and in modern society where people are hooking up on apps and sharing a lot right away you actually don't know where you stand and trust because it's built over time through consistency it's not to say that people shouldn't have the freedom to do what they want with people that they have a consensual understanding with but if you want to know if you're safe it has to happen incrementally you have to build and dance with that and so that would be my encouragement to people is to let people get closer when they're showing you those codes, when they're showing up in your life with those codes, it could be an opportunity for there to be real connection. And again, I said, you know, there's going to be betrayals in every relationship. Could be small dents, it could be like a car crash, but that's bound to happen. And that shouldn't deter us from having meaningful connections because like, Mahatriya Ra said in that essay I read, we'll probably have like thousands of times where we were actually safe and the person was trustworthy compared to the amount of times where people really hurt us. And our reaction might be an overreaction to protect us. So it's an evolutionary program to basically take in all the data around our violation of trust and be extra careful, extra cautious. So it's going to be up to us to recalibrate. And we can do that through mindfulness and meditation too. I, I have a guided meditation on my website through Patreon called the Pyramid Meditation. That one is specifically for figuring out where our wounds are. And your body will tell you. When you concentrate in your heart and you contemplate the word love, your body will tell you about unlove. When you concentrate in your throat and you think about freedom, your body will tell you when you were neglected and if you weren't heard before or if your family didn't hear you and your body will react. And that will be the opportunity to be present with your body and to breathe and settle into that feeling until you feel safe again. And this is the sort of mind-body way of healing because we can intellectually say, I know I want to trust this person, or there's no reason not to trust this person. It's not an intellectual choice. Your body may not be on board with what your mind wants to do. That's why healing really is a mind-body process. So I hope that helps. And then there was a message here. 
Please share your insight on being able to trust our ability to set our own boundaries when it isn't very clear. Thank you. I actually think communicating our boundaries is harder than having boundaries or knowing what our boundaries are, but, but communicating to others. Yeah, I can repeat the codes also. Safety, respect. So respect means that the person honors that you have your own experience. When a person says something like, well, you shouldn't feel upset about that, it's invalidating your genuine experience. They may not feel that way, but if, if someone can validate that you have your own true feeling and experience and that is real, that's respectful. It's not that a person has to agree with you to be able to validate you. They just have to simply honor and respect that you have your own unique set of experiences, perspectives, and preferences. The next one is non-judgment, that a person doesn't shame you when you're vulnerable or when you share something that's true about yourself. So you're being vulnerable by opening up about something or offering up something personal. And if a person is protective with that, non-judgmental with that, it's a sign that there's trust growing there. And then there's acceptance and love. And ultimately, I feel like trust is almost synonymous with love. So communicating our boundaries is easier when your boundaries aren't being violated, meaning as you grow in any relationship, you ask questions to each other. I mean, and this is another code that a person cares and is interested and would like to know what our preferences are. And we can do that with other people. So as we're talking about what's true for me, what's safe for me, what is acceptable to me, then when people start to know what your boundaries are, like an example is, I'm not available to talk after nine o'clock. I go to bed at nine o'clock and a person doesn't respect that keeps calling you at nine or 10 at night. Well, then we know they're not respecting the boundary, right? So trust isn't building in that situation. And then the beauty here is that if I am communicating in this way and communicating my boundaries beforehand, I don't actually have to do all of the setting the boundaries in the way that we might ordinarily think. Basically, when the codes aren't being used, I don't keep giving the vulnerable aspects of myself. So like if I keep setting up a time to meet with someone I'm in a relationship with, but they don't honor that time or they keep canceling on me, at some point, I'm not going to give my time. I'm not going to share that with that person because the trust isn't growing. They're not using the code of respect of my time, for instance. So as you communicate your boundaries, the beauty is people get to decide whether or not they want to come close or not. You just no longer have walls. It's like Robert Frost said in a poem, good fences make good neighbors, which simply means if you had a 20 foot wall between you and the next door neighbor, it kind of says something about what's possible with your friendship. Like, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And if you had no demarcation between your yard and their yard, then their dog can come poop in your yard and, and so on. And when you have a healthy boundary, it's not porous and it's not a wall. It's not impenetrable. And people can decide how they want to approach you. If they can approach you with respect and safety and non-judgment and so on, then we ought to let them move in another ring. 
But if we let them all the way into in a circle with just a little bit of earned trust, then they can harm us. Then they can use what they know about us, or they can take advantage of us. And that's why it's something that builds over time. How can you develop or cultivate a healthy balance of trust, but not end up the opposite side where others take advantage and fall more on a naive situation? Again, I think we can protect ourselves by building trust incrementally. I have seen working in healthcare systems where people trust each other very quickly and make choices as if that new friend were in their inner circle, giving money to people they just met because they ask. And sometimes it's hard to say no, but that's what this is about. It's about being able to say no because enough respect hasn't built up. And that doesn't mean you're unwilling to trust. It just means that love is like a flower. If you just rip the flower open at dawn, it takes the beauty of the blossoming away. Like there is a natural process to the unfolding of the flower. There's a natural blossoming to the love between people. And there's often an urgency to this. I feel it. I mean, I feel it in, in my life and the relationships. Like I want to know that I can trust. I want to be able to say something. I want to be able to give something. It's like I have a gift and it's painful to not give this gift. So please show me that I can trust you so I can give. I put this in the book that I'm working on, one of the poems about love and trust being more about us wanting to love rather than receive love. We feel damned up when the trust isn't there so that it blocks us from giving. It's like without the trust, we feel like we're backed up. What we really want is to be able to love. And I'm not just talking about romantic love. I mean, with our friends, with with our family. We want to be able to flow freely, undammed. But we can protect ourselves from being taken advantage of by building trust slowly. Sometimes we'll get too hasty and we'll probably learn from that mistake. Now, I believe that if you're going slowly, building trust with friends and loved ones, and someone violates your trust, what has to happen is they move out of a circle. The key here is that people will come closer and go further. That doesn't say anything really deeply about the quality of person you are. That somebody else would disrespect you or that somebody else would have the wherewithal to build trust with you over time and then betray you. That's not something we have control over. We only have control over whether we respond kindly, compassionately, wisely to ourselves and to the connections as they unfold. But there will always be betrayals. That doesn't mean you're naive if you were following those codes, listening to your heart. But when people decide they're not going to keep using those codes, they have to move back out. So our boundaries actually stay the same, but people come closer and further away. And we know this has already happened, right? We, we had friends that we were really close with at different times in our life and they may not be in our inner circle anymore. And it might not even be because they betrayed us. It might just be because we grow apart and they're not still showing up with all this love and respect and safety because the opportunity is just not there anymore. So it's quite natural that people will come and go, but we have to trust ourselves that we can maintain those same boundaries. And even though someone leaves a closer circle, there will be new relationships, there will be new friendships, there will be better friendships because we'll learn from 
these experiences and we'll be more aware of the signs and we'll be able to notice more in the future. And we'll probably be able to, if we're wise, we'll be able to respect ourselves more and more, trust ourselves more and more. Because sometimes our wish for there to actually be trust is stronger than what the reality is. Like the subject in the computer experiment really wanted to trust the computer as if it was his friend because we want it so bad. And that's where there's the risk of being taken advantage of when we're manufacturing trust in our mind, but the person just really isn't showing up in the respectful way. And sometimes that may take talking about it with somebody or you know, reflecting on it with a professional so we can see things more clearly. Thank you. Maybe one more. Yeah, Todd, that's how it feels with my 15-year-old. Maybe other parents can relate to this more than I can since I'm not a parent, but I'm totally backed up. Feels like teens are just annoyed by your love. You have to trust it's temporary. Fifth and last kid I'm going through this with, so I trust it will change again. I wish I was as trusting of these waves in romantic relationships. I mean, I don't have the direct experience of this, but I would think it's hard as a parent to feel your child moving through circles in relationship to you. Because obviously your baby can be as close as can be, can literally be attached to you. And you're going to watch that process unfold of that person becoming more and more autonomous and drifting from there. So there is some, I think some natural pain associated with that. But by the time a child is 15, there does need to be a shift towards freedom. And that freedom is about allowing the child who's becoming an adult to be able to experiment more and feel as though you trust them. The tightness or the desire for more closeness or more sharing can be interpreted as control because there is some control that's exerted over the children when they're younger than that. So it's an experiment, but it takes a shift in the parent because all the way up into there, they can't give that kind of freedom. You can't give your small child all that freedom, but as they're becoming older teenagers, there has to be a progressive releasing of control if you want there to be trust. Because if someone's controlling someone else, doesn't matter if it's parent. But I see parents do this all the time. Parents and their adult children still have a dynamic of when that adult child was small, telling them what they should do, how they should spend their money, how they should save, about their relationships and politics, right? So that's not really respectful at some point. There's a gray area, obviously, when the kid still lives with you and you're ultimately responsible for their well-being. But I think it can start in other emotional ways where you create a safe space. You don't force your child into that space, but you let them know that you're going to be less and less judgmental about what they want to share with you, even if it's not what you want to hear. Because at some point, they're going to be an adult. And even if you don't agree with the choices or don't like it, you're no longer responsible for their choices. But you care and you love and you support, so you keep listening and you keep holding that space for them as they grow to learn that they're safe in your aura. No matter what mistake they make, I think that that relationship can continue to grow. It just will be different than it was when you were responsible for their safety.
And I would also say that it doesn't matter if, I mean, it matters, but even if these relationships haven't worked this way, even if there's been betrayal or it's felt broken, it doesn't mean that as of right now, we can't start to hold that kind of space for our loved ones where there's been tension or when there's been hurt or where there's only been perceived betrayals. Maybe we feel as though someone betrayed us, but they see it differently. Or maybe they think we betrayed them and we know we never meant that. But from this moment onward, we can show up to any relationship with those codes. We don't have to harbor all this resentment. We don't have to keep a scorecard with our loved ones. We don't have to compete with them. We don't have to try to be right. We don't have to try to win. We don't have to try to defeat them. We don't win anything from that. We don't gain anything from that. We only stand to lose their trust. There's a quote, I don't remember who it's from, but it simply says, I would rather be trusted than loved. Trust is such an honor in life.